Hi, I'm Andrew J. Boyle. Welcome to North by Norway. If you've ever been to Oslo, you'll know that one of the highlights of the tourist experience is a visit to the open-air sculpture installation known colloquially as the Vigeland Park. Over a period of more than 20 years between the world wars, Gustav Vigeland created 214 monumental sculptures with more than 600 life-sized figures in granite. Now, I do a good deal of translation work for Norwegian artists and art galleries. And last year I had a commission to translate texts for an exhibition at the Gustav Vigeland Museum, which lies just beyond the park. It was in reading these texts that I was forcefully reminded of just how many artists, during Norway's own golden era of creativity, between 1880 and 1910, just how many artists travelled from Norway to Paris in search of inspiration and guidance. Some thrived there and spent the rest of their active lives in France. Others, like Gustav Vigeland and Edvard Munch, came to Paris on study bursaries and often left again when the money was used up. Painters were attracted by Impressionism and by the wave of Orientalism that was sweeping through the art world, not least the exquisite craft of printmaking from Japanese woodcuts. And Norway's literary artists were drawn to a Paris where free and radical thought was given all the oxygen it needed. I'll come back to all of these, and how French culture had such deep effects on young Scandinavian artists. But what is rarely mentioned today is the impression that Norwegian artists left on Paris and on French artistic life in general during the creative volcano of the 1890s. For two years in particular, 1895 and 96, the sunburst of Orientalism was clouded over by art from a very different part of the world, the cool north. Scandinavian art, Norwegian in particular, was suddenly and powerfully all the rage and not only painting, but also literature, drama and, perhaps most of all, music. This is the theme of today's podcast, what Frenchmen at the time called La Norderie, that northern business. For many years, visitors to the salons of Paris had been thrilled or challenged by the Impressionists and the Orientalists, who could also be the same artists. Now, in the grip of La Norderie fever, Paris was a city whose art lovers could not get enough of chill northern landscapes. Here is Parisian critic Adolphe Bouchot describing a gallery visit. 
When we visit exhibitions of foreign artists here in Paris, or even in Luxembourg, we enjoyed meditating in front of the winter landscapes, where snow has a bluish sheen under a pale and yellowish sky. Other times, surrounded by mountains, by the shore of a sky-blue lake, there would be a cheerful play of lively colours, vibrant. The reds of painted houses, the purplish heather, the emerald moss that was shooting new growths around the base of the trees. Let's take a step back. The flow of cultural influence between Norway and France had always been in one direction. This was most clearly demonstrated, and most vital, in the period of nation-building after the Napoleonic Wars. Yes, Norway left a union with Denmark for a union with Sweden, but not before Norwegian nation-builders had in 1814 created a progressive constitution, through which ran the spirit of Rousseau and the social zeal of both the new American constitution and the short-lived French constitution that had followed the revolution. In the first half of the 19th century, Norway's young painters were drawn to the academies in Düsseldorf and, later, Munich. However, with the emergence in France of the early Impressionists and the Barbizon school, the European art map was redrawn. So, in the last two decades of the century, the German academies lost much of their attraction for Norwegian art students, who chose rather to submerge themselves in La Vie de Bohème. In 1878, as part of the Exposition Universelle, the World's Fair in Paris, a huge exhibition of art was staged that revealed to Norwegian artists the preeminence of contemporary French art. Among the Norwegians who moved to Paris after the exhibition were Christian Krog, Hans Heyerdahl, Erik Werenschol, three of the country's finest painters of the day. Attracted by liberal Parisian society, there were also many female Norwegian artists who fled there from the petty bourgeois cities at home and found a welcoming environment in the studios and café culture of Montmartre and Montparnasse. These include Kitty Schelland, Harriet Bakker and Asta Nørregård. What about Norwegian authors? Well, up to the 1870s, they had preferred the classical inspiration of Rome. But this was to change with the establishment of the French Third Republic in 1870, after the Franco-Prussian War, and especially in the wake of that brief flowering of progressive social politics, the Paris Commune of 1871. Historian Life Kronen writes this. In 
the new republic rekindled the hope of fulfilling the old promise. Freedom, equality, brotherhood. A generation of writers with Flaubert, Zola, Maupassant and the brothers Goncourt at its head augured well for a wholly new way of thinking. Art, in particular literature, was expected to serve reality. For Norwegian writers, realists as they were, this was irresistible. Paradoxically, the great literary names in Norway's nation-building project came to Paris to find out what the future might look like. Björnstjerne Björnsson lived in Paris for five years, from 1887, and Jonas Lee for 24 years, from 1882. Every Norwegian in Paris was to be found at the table of Jonas Lee at one time or another. It became a rallying point for Scandinavian thinkers. Now, I said that La Norderie came to its feverish climax in 1895-96, but the first unmistakable symptoms could be diagnosed a good deal earlier. And, in hindsight, there is one event more than any other that signals that the French cultural elite had caught the Norwegian bug. It happened on the night of May 20th, 1890, and was later described as a clap of thunder in French artistic life. It was an event that shook the art establishment so forcefully that an echo can still be seen on today's street map of Paris. Only one Norwegian artist has been honoured with a street name in the French capital. If you leave the city circular road at Les Fougères, you will be driving on Avenue Ibsen. That night in May 1890, on the experimental stage of the free theatre, Théâtre Libre, Henrik Ibsen's Ghosts was given its French premiere, with its disturbing study of male hypocrisy and the effects it could have on social morality. The unflinching realism that was conveyed by ghosts that night in Paris is often regarded as the start of modern French theatre. I'll be coming back to Henry Gibson in a podcast in a few weeks' time. What was the appeal of La Norderie for French taste? Well, as an antithesis to the industrialization of the cities and as a counterbalance to the prevailing fin de siècle fatalism of the political classes, the myth of exotic and pristine landscapes far out there on Europe's periphery, had a powerful influence on Frenchmen. When, in addition, the French, along with pretty much everyone else in the Western Hemisphere, 
were captivated by the gripping three-year adventure story of Fritjof Nansen's Fram expedition towards the North Pole in the mid-1890s, well, then we can see why Norway seemed to take shape in French minds, as if appearing out of the mist. Little Norway cemented its new position as a potent symbol of free-thinking and bold liberal values. In his book, Björnson and France, Jean Lescoffier phrased it like this. This tiny Norwegian people rises suddenly out of the darkness and presents itself to Europe with hands full of the fruits of its renaissance. At the present time of drought and insecurity for France, she makes her appeals to foreign shores. She imports. Norway, instead, is rich and exports. If a few Norwegian artists attracted attention to their works while in Paris, there were very few who made enough money to stay long in this expensive capital. Living there was a hard struggle for most. Edvard Munch arrived in Paris for the first time in 1889 on a stipend. He was 25, had little to live on, his health was poor and at the end of November he lost his father. During this period of personal and creative upheaval, he tried to meet full-on the challenge of establishing for himself an artistic direction. In a sketchbook of the time, he noted down a thought that might be regarded as a beam of light guiding his art in the coming years. He wrote, Symbolism. Hmm... Nature is shaped by one's state of mind. In February 1896, Munch returned to Paris to study printmaking techniques, and hangings of his art were beginning to attract influential admirers in the French capital. What leisure time he had, he spent with the English composer Frederick Delius, and late in life Munch wrote to his friend. Oh, I remember that impoverished, but lovely, period, when I had my studio on Rue de la Santé. At that time, I recall how I was determined to sell empty wine bottles to make enough to buy food, and I couldn't make as much as ten centimes. And then, do you remember, that I often came to eat with you, drank splendid wine, and you raised my spirits with your good humour. In her biography of Munch, art historian Sue Prideau reflects on the artist and la norderie. Paris took refuge in equating the North with a primitive mind and a society less evolved than its own. This was the repulsion and the fascination, the very cause of Munch being invited to Paris by Frenchmen. It was the reason for the craze for Scandinavians that had swept the avant-garde over the last two years. The Swedes and the Norwegians tyrannise us! Le Figaro raged as la norderie 
took over from Japonisme as the new theatre of experiment. The brutal ability of Ibsen and Strindberg to cut to the bone led to Sarah Bernhardt roundly cursing La Noriderie and refusing to act in their plays. But the day of the divine Sarah, with her melodramas and poisoned daggers, was giving way to Norway fever. I've mentioned art and literature and the thunderclap that was Henrik Ibsen. What about music? Young Norwegian composers were, in fact, a rare commodity in Paris. They still preferred German conservatories. But this is not to say that there was any lack of Norwegian music. On the contrary, Norwegian music was everywhere. Its influence was huge. It contributed as much as did visual arts to the warm reception in the French capital for Nordic culture. The credit for this positive attitude can, however, be ascribed to all intents and purposes to one composer, a man who in fact avoided Paris for as long as he could. You recall perhaps that I quoted at the start of the podcast the French critic Adolphe Bouchot, who said that gallery visitors meditated in front of the Norwegian winter landscapes. Well, you might be surprised to hear how he continues. The dreams we spun in front of those paintings were conjured up through Grieg's music. His lyric pieces, the andantes of his sonatas, the humoresques, the song of the trembling Sulvai. We were beguiled by these melodies created beside the fjords. They invited us to travel on dream journeys to regions full of mysticism and legends and in some misty light we found our dream, our own longings. While the works of leading painters, then as now, were the concern of a small cultural elite, Edward Grieg reached with his many volumes of salon pieces for piano the living rooms of countless middle-class homes. In the course of the 1880s, Grieg's music, with its exotic colours borrowed from Norwegian folk music, acted with enormous power on a wide French public appreciative of music. <laughs> and yet, despite the enormous interest and numerous invitations from orchestras to grace their halls with his presence, Grieg resisted Paris. The reasons were mostly financial. The price of living in the French capital grated with his thrifty nature. But more importantly, he was bitter that the success he had achieved had been brought about through illegal publications of his music, 
from which he earned nothing. He was a victim of what we today call copyright piracy. Time and again he was tempted by conductors only to withdraw at a late date, often with his frail health as an excuse. Yes, this Paris, he sighed in a letter to Jonas Lee in 1888. It will probably remain my promised land, which I am never to enter. All resistance was finally overcome, however, in December 1889. Edvard and Nina Grieg came to Paris and stayed six weeks, received everywhere as if they were royalty. Grieg and Ibsen were at the peak of their careers when they conquered Paris. As the Scandinavian fever cooled, Norway was moving towards its independence from Sweden in 1905. In that context, I want to conclude today with these words, not about the established masters, but about the new young generation. Let me finish by again quoting historian Thorleif Kronen. This generation of creative Norwegians came home not only as artists, but also as social activists. In Paris, they had lived in a cauldron of debate and discussion. Evenings were spent at their favourite cafés, discussing everything between heaven and earth, politics, literature, art, social issues, often in opposition to the conservative society in which they had grown up. They didn't exactly return to Norway as political agitators, but they certainly got into a mindset of wanting to shake things up a bit. The principal reason was that they had been given a lesson in just how far behind in social development their homeland lay. And not only in cultural matters, here in France they had lived and worked in all sorts of conditions, often close to poverty, but in every instance they had this in common. They had enjoyed a high degree of personal freedom. In the following twenty years, this generation of artists is going to take the development of Norwegian artistic life by the horns. Next time, let's go skiing. But for now, tusen tack för att du hörte på. Thanks for listening.